Jesus' parable about the rich man and the poor man will tell us about the folly of living for the dot rather than the line. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus himself telling this parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with all that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, God does not discriminate between the rich and the poor. God does not discriminate between the rich and the poor. There are some false stereotypes that, are, that we are often guilty of attributing to the rich and the poor. We often stereotype the rich as selfish, fixated on their wealth, and unconcerned about the plight of the poor. And we often stereotype the poor as being lazy, welfare dependent, and a burden on society. Neither stereotype is true. Jesus' intention in telling this story, this parable about the rich man and the poor man, was not to stereotype either of them, either the rich or the poor, but to serve as a negative example of what the kingdom of heaven is like. He told it to highlight the contrast between how the rich and the poor tend to respond to the kingdom of heaven. And so this parable is one of contrasts. I'm sure that you recognize that every generation has its wealthy. Those who live the so-called good life, those who experience what we call the pinnacle of success, those who can afford the penthouse, or those whom we think have arrived. To many people, wealth is the essence of life. And so the more they have, it's the more that they crave. Wealth to them means independence. It means self-sufficiency. 
It means having plenty of opportunity to enjoy all that you have accumulated in life. And so only, although only a few people attain to that level of wealth, many strive to accumulate it. Much like the rich fool whom Jesus himself had to call a fool to his face because he spent all of his life trying to tear down his barns and big, building bigger ones so that he could accumulate more and more stuff to become self-indulgent with. And so Jesus rebuked him by calling him a fool to his face. Now this parable about the rich man and Lazarus is a warning against greed because greed has a tendency to pull us into a life of self-indulgence. And so Jesus is not condemning the rich. He's not trying to make any, any person who feels rich or who is rich feel guilty. He's warning us against greed and its tendency to pull us into a self-indulgent lifestyle. Jesus is not warning us against accumulating wealth. He's warning us against living a self-indulgent lifestyle. Way back in the 5th century, Augustine warned about having a nature that is curved in upon itself. The Latin is homo incurvatus se, curved in upon itself. By that he meant that pride results in a turning away from God. And so rather than remaining dependent upon God, we become dependent upon ourselves. We choose the prideful path of trying to find our own good and our own way rather than depending upon God. We develop what Augustine called a misplaced love, a misplaced love, where we choose the love of self above the love of God. We were created by God to express love for God outwardly, but we turn inward, rejecting God and giving our greatest adoration to the almighty self. And so love replaces, love for self that is, replaces love for God. And we may even try to justify our love for self by claiming it to be love for God anyway, because sometimes I think we do that. Now, Augustine illustrated this idea of a nature that is curved in upon itself by talking and writing about two cities, two cities. One of these cities he called the city of God because in this city, he says, its citizens are preoccupied by serving the kingdom. And the other city he called the city of man because its citizens are preoccupied with serving their own interests. And so the fundamental difference between these two cities, Augustine claims, is that it is in the objects of their love. This is what he writes. He says, quote, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former glorifies in itself, and the latter in the Lord. Now, the point that Augustine was making in this quotation, I think, is that it is what we love that shapes us. 
It is what we go after in life that forms us and shapes us and will determine whether we are citizens of um, the city of God or citizens of the city of man. I want you to pay, the, pay attention to the following quotation by Brad Pitt, a very famous actor. I believe that this quotation is the perfect illustration of a nature that is curved in upon itself. And sometimes we glorify these actors. But listen to what Brad Pitt says here. He says, when I got untethered from the comfort of religion, so he belongs to the school of people who thinks that religion is a crutch for people. When I got untethered from the comfort of religion, it wasn't a loss of faith for me. It was a discovery of self. I had faith that I am capable enough to handle any situation. You notice what he's doing here? He's becoming a god to himself. There's peace in understanding that I have only one life here and now, and that I am responsible. That is a nature that is curved in upon itself. Now, the parable that we reference and that, that forms our text, it pictures life through two characters. The rich man in the story is nameless because he could be any one of us. He represents the danger of wealth. He could be any one of us because wealth is relative. I'm sure that you've heard it said before that if you have food in your fridge, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world's population. If you have money in the bank, your wallet, and some spare change, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you are more blessed than the million people who will not survive this week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the agony of imprisonment, torture, or starvation, you're richer than 500 million people alive who are suffering. So before you begin to think that this story is for someone else, realize that you may be the rich man in the story. Lazarus is the name of the story's second character. His name is derived from the word Eliezer, which means God is my help, which is a bit ironic because in Lazarus' state, you kind of get the sense that maybe God is not helping him. That's his name. God is my help. God helps. And yet it doesn't seem like God is helping him at all. He's poor. His body is full of sores, which suggests that he has no access to health care. And he has the unenviable position of competing with dogs in order to stay alive. To feed from the crumbs, the scraps of food that are falling from the rich man's table. So there are two people in the story with two contrasting set of life's circumstances. The rich has everything, while Lazarus has nothing. The rich man seems to be on the inside. Lazarus seems to be on the outside. But God is not about discriminating against the rich or against the poor because of their circumstances. God is not condemning the rich while rewarding the poor. God is both a God of the rich and the poor. 
but God is against a nature that is curved in upon itself. God is after our love, the love of both the rich and the poor. The second point I want to make this morning is that neither the rich nor the poor can escape the inevitable. Jesus says that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. God wants us to look at life from an eternal perspective. Our text tells us that after some time, he doesn't tell us how much, but after some time, both the rich man and Lazarus die. Each has a ticket to a destination that money, in fact, cannot buy. A destination that is permanent. But I want us to realize that a remarkable reversal has just taken place at their death. Some people call it the eschatological reversal. Because what used to be um, true before is now flipped. The, the, the script has been flipped, so to speak. Lazarus is now on the inside. And the rich man is now on the outside. Because you see, the angels carry him, Lazarus that is, to the Abraham side. He is carried. And carried in style, I would imagine, to Abraham's side. Where he's now living in comfort. While the rich man is buried, there's nobody carrying him, perhaps except the, those who are carrying his coffin to be buried. He's carried, I'm sorry, he's buried, and he's in Hades where he's living in torment. Now the Greek word basanos is a word that is used for torment, and it describes the kind of punishment that is often meted out to a slave to elicit a confession from them for wrongdoing. So he is in torment. The lesson here for us is that whether we are rich or poor, we can never escape the reality of death. And maybe I need to say that again. Whether we are rich or poor, we can never escape the reality of death. Whatever the quality of our lives here on earth is, all of us will die one day. Because, you see, this life is not our final destination. It is merely our dressing room, if you will. Some people describe it as that. Our dressing room for eternity. It is a place where we prepare for the life that is to come, the eternal life that is to come. And it is how we live here that determines how we die and where we will, in fact, end up. Slide by C.S. Lewis has a quotation from him. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will gain neither. So what we're talking about here is priorities. We aim at heaven when we prioritize God's kingdom and his righteousness over everything else. And for the Christian, that is how life ought to be. We prioritize God's kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus taught us that when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things that we desire 
will be added to us as well. And so the video illustration that we looked at earlier from Randy Alcorn, it puts it in great expense when he compares eternity to a line. Eternity is a line and life is a made dot on that line. And he challenges us to live not for the dot, but to live for the line, to live for eternity. But what we realize, if we're honest, is that most of us tend to live for the dot rather than the line. We go after accumulating things. That becomes our priority. And then when we die, we, we, we are in for a major disappointment because we recognize that all that we have accumulated in life is not transferable to eternity. We can never take it across into eternity. And so not only will we lose earth, but we lose heaven as well. So Lazarus dies and he is carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and he is being comforted there. Which is different from the life that he existed, because, I mean, that he lived, because he lived in poverty and, and in dependence on the well-being uh, from the rich man's table. But the rich man dies also, and he's buried, and he ends up in hell, and he is in torment. So there are two very different destinies. Just as there were two different lifestyles, now we find there are two different destinies. Please be aware that Jesus is not teaching in this text that the rich go to hell. Jesus' teaching is that whether we are rich or poor, death is inevitable. And people who lived for the dot rather than the line who lived in the city of man rather than the city of God, who had a nature that was curved in upon themselves, those end up losing not only heaven, but they lose earth as well. Here's our third point this morning. Between life and eternity, there is a fixed chasm. Now, I have never visited the Grand Canyon. I'd love to go there one of these days, but I've, I've never visited it. But I don't believe that it is called one of the seven wonders of the world for nothing. I'm told that on average, according to the National Park Service statistics, I'm presenting them to you now, it is 10 to 18 miles wide. I never fathomed that that was actually the case until I researched it. It's 10 to 18 miles wide. It is one mile deep. And it is 277 miles long. Now that means that if you are on one side, trying to get to the other side, that would be virtually impossible. The difference between the Grand Canyon and this chasm that Jesus is talking about is that the Grand Canyon has dimensions to it. You could possibly parachute over if you're brave enough, or you, you may fly over or something. But you cannot cross this chasm that Jesus is talking about in this text. There are no bridges between heaven and hell. So when Abraham tells the rich man, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. When, when Abraham tells him that, he's saying that now it's too late, son. 
It is too late. Now that puts to death any reasoning that we sometimes hear about, that a loving God is not synonymous with the existence of hell, and that God would never allow any person to go to hell. That puts that lie to bed. The parable is a negative illustration of what we learned a few weeks ago when Pastor Ben was preaching about this dishonest manager. Remember that this dishonest manager wasted his master's goods by forgiving the debts of his master's uh, debtors so that in the event that his master cast him out, they would provide accommodation for him. They would take him into their homes. This is a negative example of that. The chasm means that no change can happen after we die. Because death is permanent. No change can happen after we die. Repentance and forgiveness can only happen this side of eternity, not after we have crossed. The Bible warns us that there can be no repentance in the grave. That would be too late. This life is the dressing room for eternity. And so if we fail to get dressed here, we will remain undressed in eternity with no opportunity to get dressed then. That's how serious this parable, this teaching from Jesus is. And so while this rich man is already in torment, he realizes that it is too late for him, and so he now turns his attention to helping his five brothers. Not a bad idea at all, except that it is now too late. He wants Abraham to send Lazarus to warn them to repent of their lifestyle while they were still living, lest they die and end up where he is with no chance whatsoever to repent. But it is too late for that as well. Because you see, the message of repentance can only be preached and obeyed this side of eternity. Do I need to say that again? Maybe somebody needs to hear that. That the, the, the preaching, the message of preaching about repentance and repentance itself can only happen this side of eternity. But you know, I really applaud the desperation of this rich man. You must commend him for his desperation. He's not about to give up. He suggests that maybe, Father Abraham, maybe you can try a sign then. Maybe a sign will work. If it is too late for preaching, then maybe they will believe if they saw a sign from the grave. If the preaching of God's word is, is not enough to make his brothers repent and turn to God, maybe a sign from somebody who came from the dead would make them do that. Listen to Abraham's reply. It is clear. It is that the preaching of God's word is better than any sign. You know, sometimes we, we kind of want to see a sign or we want God to do a miracle. Abraham is saying here, no. God's word, God's word is better than any sign. Because you see, I don't know about you, but sometimes signs are easily ignored. I mean, if, if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't have been almost issued a speeding ticket some years ago. <laughs> 
as I was driving down on 40, you know, and, you know, coasting along and enjoying music or whatever, and I didn't realize I was going 60 in a 45-mile-per-hour zone until I saw the flashing lights. Signs can be ignored. So Abraham says, no, don't, don't look for a sign. God's word, the preaching of God's word is better than any sign because signs tend to be ignored. They do not listen to Moses and the prophets, he says. They will not be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. So if the preaching of God's word cannot convince and put a crack in people's hearts, neither will miracles. And you only need to turn to Jesus' resurrection from the dead to realize that, because people still don't believe, even though a sign came from the dead. Bottom line to our message this morning is that what we love determines where we end up, our destiny. I have two challenges for you this morning. One is to respond to the fierce urgency of now. Those are not my words. Those were the words of Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, I quote, we are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. There is such a thing as being too late. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. And yes, he was talking about the civil rights movement then. But what is true about the civil rights movement then is also true about getting into God's kingdom now. Scripture says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts today, but you respond. Fierce urgency of now. I wonder if I'm speaking to anybody this morning who needs to respond to the urgency of now. For a few moments with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, not going to ask you to do anything, but if this applies to you, I'm going to ask you in the confines of your own heart, turn to Jesus now and settle that issue with him by asking him to come into your heart and save you and make you ready for eternity. Lord Jesus, in this sacred hour, you are the examiner of every heart. We pray, God, that there is no person in this building today or viewing us online who will miss this opportunity to be saved, to give their hearts and lives to you so that, that they might be ready for eternity. We pray that you will do this transaction in them now. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a second challenge I want to issue to you this morning. Prioritize God's kingdom and his righteousness. Prioritize or put, put it in first place. That's what that means. God's kingdom and his righteousness. I believe that we have gotten to a stage now where we have glorified work and life above God's kingdom and his righteousness. We place our interests above seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. And if we are Christians, then 
God's kingdom and his, and his, his righteousness should be priority number one. Amen. But here's the reality. We tend to elevate our needs and our desires above God's kingdom and God's righteousness. We put the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of things and the accumulation of materialism, we put these things above God's kingdom and his righteousness. We make all kinds of sacrifices for work, but not for God's kingdom and his righteousness. We make all kinds of sacrifices for work, but not for God's kingdom and his righteousness. Should I say that again? We make all kinds of sacrifices for work, but not for God's kingdom and his righteousness. Love of self has replaced love for God. I believe that God is asking some of you to shift your priorities. Stop trying to put your eggs in baskets. Start putting your eggs or investing your eggs in the kingdom of God. Start becoming more invested in advancing the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Advancing the kingdom of God through your worship, through your prayers, through your giving, through your discipleship. You need a paradigm shift in which you switch cities. Stop living in the city of man. Start living in the city of God. Let us pray together. God, I could easily be that rich man that you're talking about in this story. Because any of us, Lord, who pursues things other than you and your kingdom, Lord, it is those that you're speaking to this morning. And God, you're speaking to us about shifting and reordering our priorities so that you and your kingdom and your righteousness are priority number one for us. God, whatever that means, whatever we need to shift, whatever we need to change, whatever we need to adjust, we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us the grace and the courage to do so. Thank you for your words to our hearts, and Lord, we desire to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.